Now we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 1 and then Nehemiah chapter 4 for one verse. And so if you want to go ahead and, and make it that way. Uh, there's a story that Abraham, about Abraham that rabbis told. It's, in, it's extra biblical. It's not in your Bible. You won't find it there. Uh, but it's about Abraham before he took his journey to, to follow God and to, and to seek God. The story goes is that Abraham and his father ran an idol business, that they actually sold idols. They manufactured and sold uh, things that people, the deities that people would worship. Abraham came from the Fertile Crescent. Uh, where the Tigris and Euphrates River uh, meet. It was the cradle of civilization. It was where civilization first started because there was river, there was life, there was fertility, uh, but also a lot of false uh, gods there as well. So as Abraham uh, is running this factory, his, his dad leaves the store, and so Abraham gets a hammer, and he busts every single idol but one, and he puts the hammer in the hand of the one idol that he hasn't busted. Abraham's dad comes in and says, what in the world is going on here? You've busted all these idols. Abraham said, no, I didn't. Is that one over there? See that one? He came through and busted every single idol that you see. His dad says, that's preposterous. That could never happen. So Abraham turned to his dad and said, then why are we worshiping these false gods. Rabbis teach that that's the first impression that got Abraham moving. See, something has to break in our lives in order for us to go into the new thing that God has for us. See, we have to be willing to break with the old in order to step into the new. But that's scary because those old structures we've leaned on for a long time. We've leaned on those old ways and those old structures and those old hierarchies and those old ways where we could manipulate those things to get what we wanted. We could manipulate those things to, to get the result that we wanted and even give God credit for it, even say God was 100% in it. But see, God's got to break that thing in our life in order that we would take a step into the unknown and begin a faith journey with him. So some of us feel like we're in exile because our crutches that we have tried to lean on are starting to break out from under us. And we feel uncomfortable. How many of you know it feels uncomfortable to have what you were leaning on break right out from under you? But it's not until that thing breaks out from under you that you find out that Jesus is going to catch you. Some people say, hey, you got to hit rock bottom before you find the Lord. And that is so true because when you hit rock bottom, you find out that Jesus is the rock on the bottom that you've got to crash into in order to be saved. And so this is what God wants to do. He wants to remove these old structures, these old things that you're that you're leaning on but but man is it not scary to be in exile to start traveling a road that you've never been down before and so sometimes things got to break in order for us to achieve and get to the place God would have us to be because how many of you know there's everybody's got an opinion for the way it ought to be 
right? We've all got an opinion of the way it ought to be. So sometimes God's got to get us out of the way it ought to be and then throw us into reality of how it actually is and says, can you love me there? Because if you can love me in the way that it actually is, you won't be making excuses or idols and exalt things over me and put things over me. See, some of us were in a structure, in a place, and we felt as if God was in it and that we were serving God 100%. But when that structure come crashing down and when things begin to shake up, we found in ourselves we love the structure maybe a little bit more than we even love Jesus. Ooh, I'm going to have to earn it this morning. Okay, that's okay. I'll earn it. I'll earn it. See, that thing that we say, we all say this, I'd serve God if, or I'd go further with God if I had a different job, or I'd go further with God if this would work out and that would work out, or I'll go further with God if, if, if he touches me here or does this there, or I'll, and we make all these things, and what we really did is create an idol before God to say, God, if you do this, then I'll do that, and that's nothing more than idolatry, and so God's got to break all those things. He's got to break all the what-ifs in our life and say, will you trust me if it's just faith that you have to go on based on the character that I have in relationship with you. See, what happens is when we lean on structures is we're really saying we don't trust the relationship we have with you, God. We really trust just the things that you've put in place to govern and rule us. That's why all of America, the great percentage, believes in God. Who doesn't want an orderly universe that works out for your good? But when we start talking into walking in relationship and Jesus being the Lord of your life and stretching you into new places, suddenly we find out, ooh, it's a step a little bit further than maybe we wanted to go. But I want to encourage you that everything that crashed down in your life and every unfulfilled dream and every unfulfilled thing that did not happen that you've been upset about or asking God about was the path that God wanted to take to get you to hear so that there wouldn't be any stipulations on the next step that you would take. That you would be a little bit wiser the next time you took a step. That you wouldn't have this, this false ideologies and this idealistic thing of how this ought to be or how that person should have been or this person should have been or why was this person like this why did this person do that why did... and you can get rid of all of that clutter and you can begin to step into a relationship with God and have no stipulations when you follow him you be wiser your eyes are more open you're able to step and, and to know and to see things clearer because you're not leaning on people as to, to please you or to, to whatever you're just leaning on Jesus and so whatever the people's going to do it doesn't matter because you're not leaning on people People. You're leaning on Jesus. And so people can't manipulate you and be your God and be your idol anymore. And it doesn't matter if they treat you bad or who treats you this way or who treats you that way. You can go on and be obedient to God because God is trying to take us to the place where we can love our enemies. But you can't love your enemies if you want to make your enemy make you feel good before you're going to love them. Man, that's just my introduction. Help me. I have to use the socks up here. 
God provides. See, God's trying to get us to the place of the supernatural. But the only thing that pleases God is faith. That will never change. And faith doesn't come by seeing. Faith comes by hearing. And so if we'll just get some ears that can hear the voice of God and be brave enough to step out and trust that more than what we see, we can start to break the images that the enemies put on us. We can start to believe what God says over what anybody else says. And suddenly we can begin to operate in the supernatural presence and power of God. If people's got to act a certain way before we love them, Man, we are in trouble. We just revealed that we have an idol higher than God because we'll be obedient to God if this person does this. And God's trying to say, would you just strip all that silly little thing down? And God's stripping all that down, all those old structures, all those old things. And he's saying, would you trust me and take a step into the new place that I have for you to go? In Nehemiah chapter 1, our text takes place uh, in a, today after the people of God had come out of exile. After the glory days of David and Solomon, the people of God begin to forsake God. The empire split and they begin to exalt foreign gods. And they begin to, they still had the title and like the title of being the people of God but they no longer honored God. They were a people that honored God with their lips, but their hearts had become far from God. See, every nation has a national identity. It tells us in the book of Acts that God had set the boundaries and parameters and start to finish in every nation that has ever existed. When that nation no longer fulfills its destiny, God will then visit that nation in judgment because each nation has a unique destiny that God wants to uh, give to show the glory of God. Israel's uh, designation as a nation was to show that there is a mighty God in the earth and that he is merciful and that he is full of grace and so through relationship with their God they were to show the nations how great God is and lead them to themselves and uh, but but Israel unplugged from that national identity and begin to create their own and this is what happens to us as in humanity on a nation national level and on a, a personal level is we are supposed to be connected to the purposes of God that we might give him glory in all things when we unplug from that story that grand story of God's salvation how many of you know that all of human history is about Jesus and Jesus coming back and taking this world back to himself and ruling and reigning in righteousness wiping every tear and drying every eye that is what all of human history is about it was pushing towards that then after Christ it's about exalting that message and getting that message out whenever we unplug from that narrative we then have to create a story of our own that we could live for because we can't live without purpose and so what happens is is that the nation of Israel begin to listen to their own heart rewrite their own story 
story and think that they were there just to promote their nation in and of itself and to promote themselves and their own prosperity separate from the purposes of God. See, 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 this is where we've got to watch it as a nation because we exist to give God glory. Uh, righteousness exalts a nation. But when we unplug from the story of God and then begin to create our own narrative, we've got to get it from somewhere else. And so where are we going to get it? In a democracy, we get it from popular opinion. Uh, in democracy, we get it from whoever yells the loudest. But I don't care what segment of society is screaming the loudest. The story of God... And the mission of God is still the number one thing for this planet. It's still why it exists is to give God glory. And so the people of God had begun to write their own story and begin to say this is the reason we exist, not for that, but still wanted to bring God in when they needed times of protection or times of prosperity or or whatever. And so whenever this begins to happen, God has to then send in judgment to get our attention. See, God's got to break the thing that we start to lean on before we create the idol and turn from him altogether. So this judgment that God does is not out of a meanness or it's not out of anger. This judgment that God is, does is not pulling the wings off of flies. The judgment that God does is, 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 is to stop us in our tracks where he might be able to show himself as loving and merciful in our lives. See, God wants to be known as what? God is love. The only way God is known as love is because he shows grace to people that don't deserve it. The only way he can give grace is if people that don't deserve it will come to him. So God sends the judgment because he wants to, the world to know who he is through grace. And the only way he shows who he is is being gracious to those who are below him. So God will send the judgment at times in our life to stop us in our tracks and to bring everything to a halt so that we would bow a knee and come to this great God and we would experience the grace and the transform, transformative power of his love. And when we experience those things, suddenly the world looks and says, wow, if God is, can save them, then what can he do in my life? And it creates this chain reaction where people begin to go and find God where they could go and find the love and grace of who he is. And so when God sends judgment, it's always love at the back end of it because he's not he doesn't get jollies out of the out of the murder of the wicked he doesn't get jollies when things happen to people that seem bad but he does want people to to recognize why they've been put on this earth and the reason you've been put on this earth is not to make money or a great name for yourself or to promote your agendas or whatever else you've been put on this earth that you might give jesus christ glory that you might give him glory how are you going to give him glory you're going to give him glory by letting him love on you by letting him change you by letting him letting the world see how great he actually is and then you would take that same grace given you and you would extend it to those who don't deserve it just like yourself that this is what God wants to do this is what God wants to do it's the love and grace of our God. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Not the wages of God. God's the furthest thing from sin. 
but God would give you over to your own devices so that those devices would crush you in such a way that you'd have to say, okay, God, I need you, and you'd find the love of God. See, sin carries with it its own wage and its own punishment, and that is death. But get this, the gift of Jesus Christ is life and grace and truth and all the good things that you've been looking for in life. They're only found in Jesus that we might be humbled and cry out to him and be healed so that others could see the greatness and the love of our God. So in 586, the Jerusalem falls to an empire named Babylon. And everything was destroyed. The temples were destroyed. The gates were destroyed. Everything was burned with fire. There wasn't one square inch that wasn't touched with fire. Everybody that was of any value, determined to be of any value or asset to the Babylonian Empire was taken into exile on a 500-mile march and, and were put into this pagan foreign nation and the only people that were left in Israel were the poorest of the poor that would have been more of a liability to take with them than it would be just to leave them there to fend for themselves but Jeremiah even though he said you're going to be defeated because God's judgment is coming he says that this captivity is only going to be for 70 years He tells the people that are in exile, do you know what his advice is? For I know the plans that I have for you. That's the people in exile. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans for a future and a hope. And you know what he tells the people in exile to do? Plant your gardens. Build your homes. Hold down and be faithful in exile because there's coming a day where I'll visit you and bring you back to the promised land. See, God's judgment isn't an end-all thing that, that just cancels us out altogether. God will send His judgment at times. But then you know what He'll do? He'll even prosper us in the place of judgment. Have you ever messed up so bad and you think, God's going to be done with me? He's going to kill me? He hates me? There's no way He could love me? But then He just blesses you and you're like, where in the world did that come from? I wasn't even living right. I wasn't even doing right. Right. But God still is so good. He keeps things moving. And, and he's leading me to himself because his kindness is leading me to repentance. And so in 539, a Persian army defeats the Babylonians. And the Persians did war differently. They weren't as oppressive as the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They let every nation that had been conquered under Babylonian rule go back to their home territories to begin to establish their national identity again. And so the Jewish people then get to go back home in 538 under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, uh, Sheshbazar, and a priest by the name of Joshua. And so here they are getting to go back. But you know what they found when they went back? They found that rebuilding is hard. That it's one thing to have a dream in your heart. But it's another thing to put your hands on that thing and make it come to pass. It's one thing to preach it, man. It's another thing to get your hands on that thing and try to turn it for the glory of God. They found out it was hard work. So you know what they did? They started building their own houses. And that's what some of us have done. It got hard and we started building our own homes. How's that going for you? 
They was living in paneled houses, Haggai says. Houses that were made with cedar wood, the best of the best. But the temple of God set in ruins. And the gates were still in ruins. And a hundred years pass. And then here comes Nehemiah on the scene. Nehemiah has never stepped foot in Jerusalem. He's probably thinking after a hundred years, surely people of God hit a lick and something's going on over there. This is what happens when the news gets back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 1 In the words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the twelfth year as I was in Susa the citadel that Hanani, one of the, my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the, provid- in the pro- province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah gets the word of the reality of what happened in his hometown. Verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcast and in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah is here. And he remembers the promises of God. And as he hears the circumstance, he allows the burden of God to enter his heart and he allows that burden to lead him to the place of prayer. See, whenever your heart gets burdened, you can't go to the dark place. And that's what happens many times as our hearts get burdened and we say, well, I'm just going to stay over here in the dark place and be sad about everything. 
God wants, you to, wants to be able to trust you with his burden and his heart for the world so that you'll turn it back into a prayer that he wants to answer. So, so Nehemiah is here getting the burden, but he doesn't stay in the dark place and weep about it. He says, God, I'm going to start standing on your promises and what you've said about the people from times past. And I'm going to appeal because you are so loving and you are so awesome that I'm going to appeal to that nature and I'm going to begin to speak this prayer back to you that you would change things. And then Nehemiah lets the cat out of the bag and tells us that he is a cupbearer which makes it all the more troublesome. How do many of you know that God will call you in a troublesome place but then put a burden on you that doesn't make sense based on the situation that you are currently in? It's like, God, why are you giving me that dream now? It would be better if I was in this place because if I was in this place, I could handle something of that magnitude. But God says, no, I'm going to give it to you over here so that you won't think it was the place that made it happen, but so that you would stay humble and know it was only me that could have worked this thing out. And so Nehemiah has his seat. All he's ever seen is Babylon and Persian rule. He's been born in Babylon. So he's all he's heard is the stories of old. He's never even stepped foot into Israel. But yet when when he gets the, the, the word of what's going on there, even though he's never been, he feels a drawing to that place that is supernatural and is a burden put there only by God. I want to tell you, your purpose in life will always be attached to what is the greatest burden in your life. And that's where your purpose and what you're called to do. You want to know where, what you're called to do? Not what you feel best about. It's what burdens you the most. And that's what God wants you to begin to solve. The problem in the earth that he wants to solve in cooperation with you. So Nehemiah is here, never stepped foot in Israel. And you know, since he's never stepped foot in Israel, he doesn't even know what Israel's supposed to look like. He just knows it ain't right. Some of you, you don't even know what your family should look like. But you know, something ain't right. See, God isn't concerned about people seeing and knowing what he's talking about. There was a generation that followed Moses that saw the ten plagues that dropped Pharaoh and the mightiest, peop the mightiest people and the mightiest empire of that time. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw manna come down from heaven. Their shoes never wore out. They saw God himself lead them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, yet they were considered an unbelieving generation that didn't get to go into the promises of God. It was the generation who didn't see that stuff that was the one that got to inherit the promised land. See, God isn't concerned with what you've seen. He doesn't care if you can't reach back into your past and pull out all this, all these ministers and all this faithfulness. Hey, I'm telling you right now, I'm first generation. I didn't know what this thing was supposed to look like. All I knew is I had a burden from God. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. And so if you've heard, that's all you need. You just need to have heard. You don't need to have seen and have this great thing figured out. All you've got to do is hear from God and step out on that thing. It's what God would have for you. And so this man who hadn't never seen suddenly got a burden for something he's never seen or even been a part of. He just had the stories and a naivety and a hunger to believe God. 
hunger to believe God could do it again. That's all God needs from us, church, is that we would believe God could do it again. That we could believe that what we've heard from the past could be this reality in our present. People say, well, Matt, you just sound like a bleeding heart. Say, well, if I read the Gospels right, Jesus had a spear stabbed through his side. And out of his heart came blood and water. And maybe we need more bleeding hearts. That when we're touched with a spear, out comes Jesus. That when we're pierced, out comes Jesus. So Nehemiah's pierced with this report. But out comes God. Out comes God and His burdens. Now Nehemiah, he was a cupbearer. The cupbearers were the ones who stood in the king's court. They were of his most trusted servants because they would actually get the wine or the drink, whatever the king was drinking, and they would sample it before the king got it. And so they would let him take a drink, and then they would watch him, say, okay, he didn't die, so this must not be poisoned. Here you go, king. But when you were in the king's court, you had to always reflect his majesty and his glory. So there was no off days or bad days or I'm having a bad day at the office when you was in the king's court. You had to have it all together because if you took a slug of that wine and you made some kind of face, they'd say, oh, that's poison. Kill him and get them out of here. He's a part of something, some conspiracy. So you had to, whether you liked it or not, you just, I'm still alive. It's good. You're going to love this. You know, that this was the, his job. This was... This was what he had to do. Yeah. That a gloomy face could have been interpreted as, I know something you don't know, and there's a plot to kill you. And he would have just been killed right there and the cup poured out, even if there was nothing in it. So Nehemiah is in the comfortable place, man. This was the job to have. You're in the king's court. You get to drink before the king. You get to have what the king has and then hand it to him. Like this was the place to be. But Nehemiah can't get out of his heart a place he had never been. He couldn't get out of his heart a place he had never been. And he didn't even know how he was going to get there. So the Bible tells us that he comes in gloomy that day. That he comes in really sad that day. And goes to hand the king his cup. And the king has realized that Nehemiah has never came in to the king's court with a sad face. And the king in his mercy looks over at him and says, You have never been sad. Why are you sad? And Nehemiah divulges to the king that how could he be happy when he hears that the temple of God and the gates of God are in ruin. Man, this was his life. King said, oh, you want to have a bad day in my court? I'm not enough for you. Okay. But the king is touched by the burden that he sees in Nehemiah, writes the paperwork up, and commissions him to go 
So here he is, the cupbearer who knows nothing about construction. In the opulence of the king's palace, one of his most trusted servants, and he goes from that willing to take a journey into the unknown and put his hands on something he's never put his hands on just because he's got a burden from God. Nehemiah is supernaturally allowed to go and is allowed to go. And so Nehemiah, do you know what he does? He just starts building. He doesn't get a committee. He doesn't say, here's the game plan. He goes and grabs some stones and he has a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. The trial to build the wall and a sword to keep any wolf away that would try to disrupt the work of God and the boasting of the enemies of God that were surrounding them. He just starts building. See, sometimes we're waiting for some great plan. We're waiting for some great scheme. And God's just saying, if you'll just start putting your hands on and rebuilding right where you're at, I'll start to raise other people because as Nehemiah started building and started laying, the neighbors started saying, hey, wait a second here. Uh, we could do that too. That's just a cupbearer. And, and the cupbearer, he probably had soft baby hands, but here he is with, you know, band-aids. And now he's starting to get some working man's hands. And, and this guy sees and says, hey, I'm going to build my section of the wall. And they divided it out. And so everybody did the section that was closest to their house. And, and so suddenly, because Nehemiah stepped out and started building, other people jumped in and started joining him. See, sometimes God's just waiting for us to step out and start building, and then he'll start putting the people around us that we need in order to carry out the dream of God and what's in the heart of God. And that's what the Lord spoke to me. He said, Matt, he said, if you'll just start doing, if you'll just start loving on people, if you'll just start meeting people, if you'll start shaking hands and hugging necks and telling them God loves them, if you'll start preaching my truth, he said, I'm going to raise up people around you that's going to have a similar heart. And as you're building your part of the wall, they're going to start building their part of the wall. And then we'll all come together. And somehow this whole wall will get built. We'll be looking at each other and say, how in the world did the wall get built? Well, we all carried a little bit of the weight. And we all all started building we all started doing and we all started stepping out in our unique gifting and begin to operate in it and suddenly Nehemiah's got a team of people building a wall with no construction experience never laid foot there doesn't even know what it's supposed to look like just know God's put a burden on his heart and called him to do it what couldn't get done in a hundred years gets done in 52 days because Nehemiah starts building now check this out. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and in, of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? So when Nehemiah went to build the wall, 
They didn't get new stones. Don't let me get too far ahead of you. I know it's, no, it's buffet time, but I need just a little more time with you now. Come on. They resurrected the stones that the Babylonians had burned and brought down to shame. So when Nehemiah starts building, he's using the burnt stones that had been through the fire <laughs> as a testimony to the nations, as a testimony to God and to everybody that would see that though you tried to destroy us, that though things didn't work out, that though I got hurt at that last church, that though somebody said something about me, that though somebody lied on me, God's going to take these old stones and he's not looking for new ones and he'll start building right with what he's got on these burnt terrible stones that make up your life. God isn't looking for a new person to build this wall. He's wanting to take the messed up self that you are and take it right there and start resurrecting and building right there where you're at. Well, 10 people got a hold of it. That's all right. See, this is going to be the DNA of our church. That those who couldn't make it anywhere else are going to make it here. That those with issues and things that you think, man, God cannot use them. They'll say, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the ones I'm going to use, those burnt stones. <laughs> because those burnt stones will testify that only God could have done this. <laughs> See, God says, we're going to build with what other people threw away and considered too damaged to use. This is what the enemy is. This is what the enemy says about the work of God that's going on. But I'm going to tell you something. There's a remnant of people that's leaving the comfort of Babylon and leaving the comfort of the emperor's chamber and that's willing to go out with a burden and begin to put their hands on dirt and burnt and concrete and mortar and raw materials and begin to start building this thing. See, it takes extraordinary faith to leave Babylon and make a spiritual journey to the place where the temple's got to be rebuilt. But get ready to expect attacks. Because that'll be the same accusation that they'll make. You're going to use those reburnt, those burn up stones. But yeah. Yeah, we're going to use those burn up stones. Both the temple walls of the city and the temple itself were constructed with the stones that had been burned during the destruction of the former temple and former city. See, these were the ones that had a previous failure and were counted out. They didn't hew new stones that they brought in the old stones. You feel like one of these burnt stones? You've been through a work that seemed glorious and pregnant with destiny only to have it come crashing to the ground and crashing to a halt and terrible 
disappointment? Have you been burned in your life? I want to tell you, you're a prime candidate for what God wants to do in your life. Because burnt stones, they may not look good on the inside, but they've been through the fire. (laughs) And since when did it become about being on the outside than it was what's going on on the inside? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you've been through some serious testing or you've experienced spiritual failure. You didn't have that spiritual failure. You might be too idealistic to understand the real purpose of what God was really trying to do with your life. See, God wants to do something with some burnt stones. He wants to do something with some burnt stones. Exodus chapter 20, verse 25. This is scripture that I had found, and it says this. If God's speaking to Moses and his people, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. So God says, if you want to build me an altar, a place of sacrifice and relationship, I don't need it all dressed up and fancy. I just need a stone to come as it is. So that nobody can say that work or that decoration on it brought down God's pleasure. No, no, no. It needs to come as it is so that when God begins to bless and and begin to create that meeting place, that nobody else would get credit for the work that only God could do. God says, I don't want a stone to touch. I don't want a tool to touch what's going to be on my altar. I just need that stone to come as it is. And if that stone will come as it is, I'll send my fire. If that stone will come as it is, I will send my fire. I'll do a work that only I can do. Haggai chapter 2, and I'm closing with this. Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. Haggai begins to prophesy about what the Lord was going to do. Because when they got the temple built... There was people there that had seen Solomon's temple. And then there was people that had been born in Babylonia that had never seen Solomon's temple. And so you had one group that had never seen Solomon's temple. They were cheering that they had built the temple of God with these burnt stones. But there was another group that saw Solomon's temple and thought it looked a lot better. So they were weeping. (laughs) Can you imagine the scene? This group's cheering... And this generation's weeping. Boy, is that not a picture of the church. My goodness. My goodness. But then Haggai's got to prophesy and take the people to a, to a different place. And here's what Haggai prophesies. Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. 
Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you. And when you come out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. See, what Haggai's got to establish is, is it's not what everything looks like. It's whether my glory and my spirit is in there. So though the house was built with burnt stones and looked old and maybe looked a little bit decrepit, God said, why don't you just take a step and put a foot in there because you'll start to fill my presence in a way that Solomon's people never got to experience. That what God is trying to do is not a work on the outside, but a work on the inside. See, God isn't trying to build a church. He's trying to build a church. And if we begin to be image bearers and those that house the Spirit of God, suddenly there's going to be a glory that's going to erupt in this place. That's going to be a place for anybody that's lost. That anybody that needs to be found, anybody, whatever they might be going through, there'll be a place for them to experience an encounter with God and be changed forevermore that God would get all the glory amen Amen. would you stand to your feet with me